So this episode, I've actually been sitting on this episode for a little while. Uh, this is the second half of Blade of Taishao, which is book two in Matthew Stover's uh, Acts of Cain. Uh, so second half of the book, if you listened to our discussion of the first half of the book, uh, either over at Inking Out Loud or on uh, uh, Patreon, then you know that the first half of the book really uh, did a number on me. And the second half of the book, just I had no idea what to make of it. And you're going to get that uh, sense, I think, through this episode. Ultimately, I didn't know, and I still don't know, what to make of the book uh, as a whole, now that I've read the second half of it. So lots of just abject confusion on my part. <laughs> and you're going to get that in the episode. After we recorded it, I kind of hated it. I debated not putting it out at all. And so I asked Drew to do uh, a redo, another episode. And we did. We actually recorded another episode to go along with this one because it gets into some of the more philosophical, uh, political discussions that we didn't get to in this because I was just so shell-shocked uh, during this <laughs> recording. So uh, so if you'd like, you can go check that out. If you want to just laugh at how confused and blank I am through this whole episode, then that's great. I hope you enjoy it. But I wanted to let you know there is another episode on Blade of Taishal Part 2 that essentially covers this one chapter that we didn't really talk about in this episode, but that is pivotal to understanding Kane and probably Matthew Stover and all, all of that. So that is there at patreon.com slash legendarium if you want to check that out. It's available to anybody who is a patron, so there's no minimum dollar donation or anything like that. You can give a buck an episode, and then you can have access to this and other uh, premium content. So with that, enjoy this episode. Thanks to Drew for being patient with my idiocy, and thanks to you for watching or listening. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Legendarium podcast. I should say welcome back to those of you who went to the Inking Out Loud stream to hear the first episode on Blade of Taishal, uh, which was a bit of a downer. Um, <laughs> so well, welcome back to part two of Blade of Taishal. This is the second book in The Acts of Cain by Matthew Stover. And uh, I, I'm, I'm Craig. I should introduce myself. Hi, everybody. I'm Craig. I'm joined by Drew, of course. Hi, Drew. Yep, how's it going? Uh, that's a loaded Better question. Better than last time. <laughs> I, you know, let's, let's, okay, let's save that for a moment. I'll just remind everybody to go to thelegendarium.com uh, to check out past episodes, check out the calendar with future episodes, uh, and uh, links to Patreon and Discord. That's what I was forgetting. So as a reminder, we are flip-flopping uh, across both feeds for this series. And so I'll need you, if you want to listen to all of the, uh, the Acts of Cain series that we're doing, me and Drew together, you'll need to also subscribe to the Inking Out Loud podcast. And uh, then you'll be able to get all of the episodes. The other way to do it is if you are a patron of either show, you'll get all episodes in both of those Patreon feeds. So there you go. A few options for you. Drew, uh, Blade of Tyshell, part two. All right. Uh, I want to start with a comment that I read a while ago. This is a few weeks ago after, after we released our first Heroes Die discussion. So this is the last one that was on the Legendarium stream. Right. 
uh, I saw the comment. I chuckled a little bit and then ignored it. But then you <laughs> sent me a message earlier today and said, hey, did you see this on our Heroes Die uh, episode? It's a YouTube comment. Now, to be fair, most people are not watching on YouTube. Most people listen uh, you know, on their phones, and that's as it should be, right? But some people do like to go watch the discussions on YouTube. So, hey, everybody. Uh, so this is where that one came from. And I'm not going to name the person. Uh, it, it doesn't matter that much, but I love this. I like your content. I shared this with my friend who loves this book. So we're off to a great start. Thank you. And, and I hope that that's sincere. Uh, <laughs> and I have reason to doubt it because the next part of it goes... <laughs> He thought, this is the friend, I, I shared this with my friend who loves this book. He thought you guys did a bad job and should be familiar with the work before talking about it. Rather than bring readers to it, he seems to think you'll turn people off the book. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's right. Um, my, my, friend, my friend asks a lot of questions. My friend says a lot of things. My, my friend uh, gets all the weird diseases, right? Um, <laughs> so anyway, no, I... I I'm using this partly to poke fun at an excellent YouTube comment, but also partly to say, um, okay, so we did a bad job. We should be familiar with the work before talking about it. <laughs> Drew, I'm about to talk about Blade of Tai Shao with you. And I'll be honest, I have no idea what the heck I just read. So, <laughs> there was a lot that happened in the second half, half of this book. Uh, I felt like the first half was really pretty straightforward and I'm not going to do like a real in-depth uh, recap for anybody. So you can go look up a plot summary or something. Uh, the first half of the book was pretty straightforward um, as far as what the stakes were and who the players were. And then in the second half, I felt like it all kind of like, poo, it exploded. It was like a firework in all directions. And it, it was genuinely a little bit tough for me to, uh, to hang on to on a first read through. Uh, thoughts and feelings. So, uh, yeah, like you said, um, no, like in-depth, uh, plot summary. If you want that, uh, you can go check out our original episodes on inking out loud. We did blade of Taishal in two episodes cut off at the same part we did here. So I think it's like episode, I don't know, 12 or 13. Um, and that one kicks off with a plot summary, but like you said, it's not even necessarily about the plot. It's about like the themes and ideas that Stover's diving into here. Uh, the core oh, of the book. Hey, I was just talking about the plot. We'll, we'll oh, get you are to talking all about the plot. Yeah, okay. no, I'm well, so, so the plot then we, we basically got like, I don't know, three main things going on. We have, we have Wraith and Kane, which that explodes into several different things. We have HRVP and Ankana, and then we have Faith and Avery and Mylecoth and Kohlberg. And, right. and so it all gets kind of muddy because Wraith ends up being this conduit. Uh, he, he touches the, the blade Kasal, uh, which has uh, Palace Rill's uh, soul. entombed soul in it. And, that kicks off this like metaphysical war for control of Wraith's body. Um, but as like Palace Rill is winning this, she causes everything to grow in Ankana, like a, a massive, insane hyper spring. And that also affects the progress of HRVP. And the whole city basically instantly 
goes insane. So we have like this crazy jungle growing through the city where every little plant and twig is blooming into giant trees. And throughout it all is this like red haze of diseased madness. And I love personally how fever dreamy this whole sequence uh, goes. <laughs> yeah. Like when you get in the head of, of uh, Damon, the monastic ambassador, and like he starts realizing that like he needs to drink blood or he thinks he needs to drink blood to slake his rabies ravaged throat right, it's, like and it's it's your blood it's who are, you know it, it, it's uh wraith that's closest to him right so it's your yeah. blood he, you didn't tell me yeah but then of course it's he creepy. he makes that thematically important though because what is the cure ultimately for hrvp it's kane's blood right because his blood has shambaraya palace rills antivirus in it right. and yeah it's so like Oh boy. And then there's Stover's the sacrament scene layering everything over it. And then, you know, you, you have this, uh, this kind of tug of war going on between the blind God and palace rill. And then Wraith eventually, uh, where he's, he's given this kind of, um, like Mark of Cain almost, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, or stigmata. If you want to be less on the nose, uh, where his, his hand, I don't know, is, that's pretty on the nose is uh, leaking the oil of the blood God. And, and he is the single conduit connecting the, the blind God. Did I say the blood God, the blind yeah. God um, talking blood and blind, whatever. Uh, and, and that's like his doom. That's what uh, Chris at the end of the book, Delian uh, says, you know, this is your punishment. You have to hold the line for the rest of your life. Um, but, but, the really crazy thing, though, and I'm not even going to go into all the details about what it means, but I think probably the most confusing moment in the, like, plot-wise, the most confusing yeah. moment in the book is, uh, let's see if I can find it here. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, so it's it's when Hari finally confronts Mylkov on the road in An Ankana and he kills mm, Myelkov yeah. and things get weird. It's at the end of 25. We face each other in the infinite. Now down the long street lined with people squinting against down the long street lined with people squinting against the noonday sun. We both know how this is supposed to play out. Our parts have been carved in legend stone for centuries, you know, and he, and he goes through a bunch of you know, historical examples and, and it gets this like, really um, larger than life sense of like, we are archetypes in this moment. We're not individual people. We are representative of something. And, and it's all taking place in this one, like infinite moment. And he cuts Milecoth in half, the same stroke that killed palace rail that killed Shauna. And something happens <laughs> that we'll get to later in the series. But the last line is, and power blasts back up through the blade, through my fists, my arms, my shoulders. It hits my heart, slams up my neck, and blows away the world. And then, you know, we get the the usual chapter ending, uh, Dark Angel, Crooked Knight, Myth segment. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
And then it opens with chapter 26, and it's Chris's point of view. It's in first-person perspective, but it's not a, a soliloquy. It's not Cain talking through the thought meter back to Earth the way he does throughout the rest of this book and earlier in the first book. And, and I, I kind of like that because the way it opens at the start of 26, you kind of are like, is this Kane talking? Right, right. You know, and it well, takes a little while. It gets to the whole twins or brothers who didn't know they were brothers or whatever the mm -hmm. thing was, right? Mm -hmm. And we get this extended epilogue where kind of we're given the state of the world now. Uh, Chris has been resurrected and created into this like immortal elf, like real elf, but like immortal deific puppet who like if he dies somehow if he's killed uh home milkoff tenaldeon whatever this like new merged mm -hmm. mega god you want to call it can just make him a new body and stuff his mind and soul right back into it right um we get you know kind of the fates lots of people are given new paths in life uh we get a new monastic ambassador and wraith for ankana we get like tapasi's uh kind of fate we get um the ennobling of avery and faith and kane just kind of rejects everything that's offered to him and he says you know what like I've, I've got i've got stuff to do yeah i'm gonna be a free agent and and then we find out in the epilogue why <laughs> yeah what he's and then he, he he goes and like nukes uh mark velo's house with magic on earth <laughs> right all right so there's stuff to look forward to let's let's talk characters okay i think this will be a way for yeah. us to get into what actually happens in this part of the book um we had met avery shanks before in uh the first part of our discussion and obviously hated her she's very hateable and then at the end of the book she's uh, how would you put it? She's still pretty hateable, but um, but redeemed in some way for the reader. Uh, she's yeah. she's given a purpose that matches her personality more closely than what she had before in her life. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that is fair. So, um, so she's she is she... Uh, Chris Hansen Delian, who's now the he's the emperor um, uh, in Ankana. Uh, he he sentences her basically to take on a noble title and raise faith, uh, who is who is the actual noble now, uh, and and uh, Avery Shanks is her. Uh, what what what's that term? What's the term I'm looking for when you like rule a in the state? Sort of. Yeah, yeah, regent. There you go. So anyway, that's what she's up to, and I I really enjoyed her um, chapters. And I want to get your take on them, but the reason I enjoyed her chapters was because at no point does he ever make her uh, completely change her personality. There yeah. just there are things around the edges, uh, you know, where her love of faith that she kind of resists at first and then gives into her love of faith uh, gives her a new goal to work toward, but the way that she works toward that goal. Uh, still feels very much like the Avery Shanks that we got to know in the first half of the book, right? Yes. Uh, what what changes is her worldview is shattered. She herself as a person is still functionally, spiritually, emotionally the same, but her her 
you know, the system she was a part of. Yeah, her security in life was taken away, and so we get to see her react to essentially the same things that Kane had to react to. Um, you know, mm. a threat to family, to yeah. a, a loss of status, a loss of volition, and she addresses it completely differently uh, from Kane, but it makes a lot of sense. And it does make us, at least for me, and I think probably for a lot of readers, it imparts some sympathy where you can feel, you're like, wow, she was a stone cold B uh, in the first <laughs> half of the book where like, she is just awful to Kane. Yeah, she's awful. But then she has to directly deal with a much greater evil. And, and, and then suddenly you're like, oh, well, like I can kind of root for this kind of, <laughs> this kind of person against the greater evil. And I think that's encapsulated in the, in the idea of like how she's the one who ends up killing Kohlberg. Um, right. Which we should talk about. Uh, by literally like ripping his throat out with her teeth. And what <laughs> she, she, uh, there's a throwaway moment, where a line, uh, you know, when it came to Avery Shanks, she, this and that and the other, and she discovered that she liked the taste of blood. Yeah. <laughs> he goes yeah. on and tells the story. Oh my gosh. This, uh, uh, okay. So that's Avery Shanks. Should we, do you have more to say about her? Because I want to talk about Colbert. No, let's talk about Colbert. Who gets his throat ripped out. All right. So if I, if, if I never read this book again and somebody <laughs> asks me in 10 years about something in the book, that something is going to be Colbert. Uh, so it's memorable. Absolutely. Uh, he is memorable. And yet, I don't understand what Stover is doing with Kohlberg here. Who is the blind god? Um, what is happening to Kohlberg in, 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 I mean, in real terms? I mean, this whole book is a freaking fever dream, right? Uh, <laughs> but, but in practical terms, what is going on with that guy? Yeah, so he, so the blind god is the idea of just the collective will of humanity that can be either good or bad. And Kohlberg is empowered with the blind god's, like, agency, but it's channeled through his particular outlook on life, but just magnified to the scale of all of humanity. So he goes from being, like, a petty, uh, vindictive kind of disgusting human being to an absolutely revolting monster right. who has the ability to do literally whatever he wants because he is now humanity. He is the, the face of 10 billion people. Um, and so like, I, I think it, you were asking about this earlier in the book in mm. the first half where he has that moment at his desk where, you know, the screen flashes white yeah. and then everything changes. And you're like, I don't get why he's acting like this. And it, and it's spelled out a little more here in the second half where it's like, he, he is the representative. He is the face of the blind God. He's not just Arturo Kohlberg anymore. It's often the man who used to be Kohlberg or like the, the thing that we once right. called Kohlberg. So. And, yeah. uh, and <laughs> he he is presented in 
whatever chapter that was in the middle of the book, you know, when uh, Tan Elkoth descends into Colbert's lair. Yeah. yeah, chapter 11, there you go. Um, he is presented as, here is the new villain. This is your big bad. This is the guy you've got to watch out for. And then yes. I, I kind of felt like that wasn't the case. He was being used... Um, by it seemed like he was being used by everybody else. Well, like in the scene with uh, with Talcoth and uh, Faith in the the whatever experimentation room, where she's strapped yeah. down to a metal table and and he's kind of oh I don't that's not the word I want to use. <laughs> he is delving into her mind in a yes. violent and unwelcome way. Um, yeah. and, and Kohlberg is there, but it's like, is Kohlberg in charge? Uh, it seems like there are some other people in charge. I, I still, I am unclear on what's going on. Basically what I have to come down to is yes, YouTube commenter. You're right. I don't know what's going on in this book. <laughs> it does require a second read through and maybe a third before I finally figure out what's going on here. All right. So what's going on with Kohlberg? So he is in charge. He is in charge. Um, Tannelkoff thought he could manipulate Kohlberg because he thought Kohlberg was Kohlberg. But uh, once, okay. and that's that was the impact of that scene when he goes down into the lair. It, it's that Tannelkoff, you're you are Tannelkoff, not Myelkoff. You are you are no longer a god. You are now a man, and as a man, Kohlberg is the face of you. Now. I see. Okay. And and so he is utterly at his mercy. You have Soapy, you have the themes of, you know, your face reflected in their mm -hmm. face. And Soapy is kind of the hand of the blind god in this book. So they're, they're layers of kind of visual motifs to build this idea of the blind god representing human beings. And it's only really on overworld that we can get humans fighting against the blind God because there, there are other gods. There are, there are other powers. Um, on overworld, but that also mean? opens the door for the, the ultimate twist at the end that Milecoth, when he, when Tamakoth returns to overworld and becomes Milecoth again, ascendant, mm -hmm. he is no longer represented by the blind God. He is Milecoth again. And so when Hari, when Cain kills him and it shuts off, you know, he doesn't have a body to be controlled by the thought meter anymore. Mylekoth's power and spirit and mind can be Mylekoth and merge with this new um, uber god on overworld, so to speak. To <laughs> okay, so Myl so Mylekoth was, he, he, Cain killed him, but he's not dead. Much like Shauna, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, which yeah, is Shauna is part of Shambaraya, right? Uh, Palace Rill is, is part of the River's Song, and Mylekoth now is he, in in the first book. His whole thing was, "I am the god of humanity." Now he is, "I am the god of Overworld," because okay. kind of the theme at the end here is that on Overworld, what makes it work is that it's not just humanity working on its own; it's the combination of humanity and and the the primals and the stonebenders and the pixies and right. you know, the treetoppers and all that. So. Okay. All right. So, you know, I got to say with that, with the whole, you know, merging with Shambaraya or being separated from your body and thus you're free to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm relieved because as you know, uh, I, I was uh, devastated uh, preview for the, uh, for um, our 
what what are we calling it? The final draft. We're stealing it today. Um, yeah. I was devastated by the death of Palace Rill, and then it turns out that she's still around, and you know, is still sort conscious. Of. You know, she yeah. still has a will, uh, which was you know a, a relief on the one hand, but on the other hand, now that this is happening with Milecoth as well, it's making me think i don't know are we in danger of losing the stakes here is this becoming a comic book movie where uh, <laughs> there's that great uh, star wars um uh video from red letter media no one's ever really gone uh <laughs> <laughs> you know it i i don't know i'm i'm less well, satisfied at the point. end of this book than i was at the end of heroes die because for for a lot of reasons but for one thing i'm like well is will things ever move forward or is this just kind of one of those uh, mythological we're destined to fight a thousand times over you know i'm rand and you're the dark one uh over i don't and over and think over. that's the point stover's going for okay um i like i i think the point he's getting at here is still sort of the same theme he was hitting at in Heroes Die, the the idea of there can be many kinds of death. Mm, yeah. Um, where, like, yes, Palace Rill, like, the mind of Palace Rill still exists, but it is directly merged now with this impersonal, inhuman god of the river. And it's very clear by the end of it that, like, this is over. Like, there's no more relationship with Hari... Mm. There's no marriage anymore. There was a very touching scene, um, you know, that when he when he opens the conduit to her on the road, you know, and oh, I understand now. If only I could have been the man you needed to, you know, needed me to be, and and they have that goodbye moment. Uh, but it feels very final in You're a way right. that you know, it, so it, it could feel like a death. It, it, a, a thematic death of the marriage. Um, yeah. And even the, the idea of like Chris being brought back to life as this like immortal emperor, he, he ruminates over it. How much of this is really me? What's the point of this? If I don't have full control over my life anymore. And, and you're like, it is, you know, if, if you have a, an artificially created God body, like, mm-hmm. Yeah, there was, and, and that was another one where it, there's a great sequence of um, uh, of watching Chris Hansen or Delian go through the final kind of battle sequence, and he had eleven oh, minutes. Yeah. He had eleven oh, minutes to live. So good. <laughs> and then you go through another several pages of you know his, what's going on around him and his thoughts. And at the end of that, it's he had eight minutes to live. And you're like, gee, Christmas, this is taking a while. And then oh, yeah, no. he, he gets like freaking nuked uh or well luckily not um he and, takes the energy of a nuke and like channels it through right, himself to right. save the city and wow. uh and then that doesn't kill him <laughs> like it does but it it doesn't this is just another one of those like okay so what are the stakes here like does death matter in this book i uh, think it I'm, does because everybody who dies even if even if they exist onward, they're irrevocably changed. Um, Should we get into Duncan at that point? (laughs) 
Sorry, go on with we what will, you're going to say. We will talk about all of these things in, in later books. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I have my Duncan prediction. It's chambered and ready to go. Um, yeah, there's... Yeah. <laughs> but this is... So this is kind of the final chapter here is a major transition point for the series. And really the second half of this book overall. But this is the the key like the final moments of chapter 25 and then chapter 26 to the end is where what stover is doing plot wise is going to dramatically shift like you said it was pretty straightforward through heroes die and through the first half of blade of taishao like hari's got x objective has to do y and z to achieve it and he has to fight off like antagonists a b and c whatever um here it becomes much more nebulous. Uh, we don't really know what his stakes are when he leaves. He's got his like revenge moment with Mark Velo, but other than that, we're like, what are you going to be up to? We don't have a clear cut um, conflict going forward, and this is one of the reasons that I uh, I maintain that each book in this series or each act in the series can be read as a standalone. Um, actually, uh. I had a comment on our Discord the other day mm. where uh, a guy said that he picked up Blade of Taishao first. He had no oh, idea it was part of a series, read it, loved it. And he was like, I totally think it can be a standalone. <laughs> okay, all right. Fair enough. I was, I, yeah. Um, I don't think I could do that with this book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be a lot to ask. Yeah. I, I, but, but narratively he doesn't make this a, an, you know, a serialized thing where there's open-ended conflicts at the end of each book to pull you along into the next one. Mm. You could just stop here the way you could just stop after heroes die. Interesting. Cause the, yeah. the end of this book with uh, when he kills Mark Bilo and, and says, Hey, you know, game, the game has changed. The portal goes yeah. both ways. You're on uh, notice. Gird your loins because I'm coming after you. Um, he that felt very much like stay tuned for next week. You know when our hero, our intrepid oh. hero. So hmm. it's interesting. That I that I do not say that with any like bitterness or anything. I I think that's totally fine. You you should give a little uh, tease, a little reason for people to pick up the next book. That's, that's totally fine. But it also works, like you say, as a, a, a just kind of a cool, um, maybe not open-ended, but, uh, oh, it's an ending with plenty of possibility, but it's still an ending. That's right? fascinating. I, cause I never, I didn't read that at all that way. I always saw it as like, Kane wrapping up his business on earth and then saying, look, we're closing the door. If you try to reopen it and mess with us, we can come after you leave us alone. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's true. He did say that. That's just not the message I took from it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The message I took from it is somebody's going through the door. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's yeah, man. Oh, and now I'm really excited to get your thoughts on on Kane Blackknife when we go into that because hmm, yeah. we'll get there. You know, we will. I I should have mentioned uh, kind of at the top of this episode, but it's probably good. I don't. 
I already pissed off one YouTube viewer. I don't need to piss off everybody who loves this book. Um, but I, when you and I had our discussion on part one and we got to uh, the end of chapter 11, I think it or whatever. Um, I didn't pick up the book for like <laughs> four to six weeks, something like that. Like I would, I would go to grab it. I'd hold it in my hands. I would turn to chapter 12 and I'd read like a few words and then I would go, I, I, I can't, I can't, I can't, I, I can't. Uh, it took a long time. And it like, it basically what it took was you saying, Hey, when are we going to record? When are we going to record? Let's record. Hey, when are we going to record? You're ready to record? <laughs> I'm like, all right, fine. I'll read the freaking Over book. Over the course of like four months. <laughs> I might've, I might have DNF this book under other circumstances, I was pretty devastated. Um, it was just so that, bleak, so dark. Anyway, we honestly, don't... it doesn't surprise me. I know there are other people out there who've had that experience. Yeah. Um, I did try to warn you <laughs> that it was going to get dark. <laughs> uh, so, but yeah, go on. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say, even for me, where uh, the overall, I, I like Blade of Taishal. It's my least favorite of the four. I think in some ways you can make an argument that it's the quote-unquote best of the series and i know there are a lot of stover fans out there who hold that opinion in mm -hmm. fact if you were to like do a general bolt uh, poll i bet you know be like what's what's the best book in the series i bet blade of taishao would end up number one in that interesting um, but like for me even the first time i read it i finished chapter 11 and i had to like put the book down for a little while it wasn't four to six weeks, but it was like, you know, a couple of days, which yeah, that's unusual for me. And, you know, I, I needed to let my soul heal a little bit after reading about Shauna and Kohlberg, especially Kohlberg. Ooh. Yeah. You, well, you would tell me these things. And I, I think, I think it's fair to say that you are a somewhat more sensitive soul than I am. Uh, <laughs> I tend to be able to it's possible like, to just kind of take, you know, sex and violence and language and all this stuff just kind of like washes over me and I don't really care all that much um, I, that this is not the case for you, right? Um, and yeah. so you would tell me, yo, I had to let my soul heal. And I'm like, okay, so something bad happens. Oh, fine, whatever. <laughs> uh, no, it was, it was rough. Turns out I do have a soul and it is capable yeah. of being bruised. <laughs> um, so anyway, okay. Sorry, uh, that was a, that was a super tangent. I want to get back to our characters here, our character list. Let's go to the other storyline, yeah. which is the Kane one. Um, and this actually kind of ties in with what I was saying earlier about the first half of the book being more straightforward, where I found myself having the most... <laughs> fun is the wrong word at almost any point in this book. <laughs> <laughs> I, I say almost because there's, there's the scene when... It when uh, when Kane and Tanelkoth escape whatever the the museum. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, like that's that's a pretty fun scene. Um, I was gonna say when Kane uh, like first gets into the pit and he like outmaneuvers Orbeck and then what? The, uh, so uh, that's exactly yeah. what I was gonna bring up. Is uh, okay. So he Kane has watched his wife get murdered in front of his eyes, which is absolutely terrible. And then he's yeah. in a kind of catatonic state. He gets taken to the uh, the capital and thrown in the pit. And we're familiar with the pit because we went through the pit briefly in book one. Uh, now he's stuck in the pit and it's kind of, it. it's a bit like chapter zero 
in that it felt like this separate story, like a little novella within the book where you have Kane, Kane uh, at his lowest uh, has to figure out a way out and, and creates a ragtag army with all these prisoners. And, and like, like you say, outmaneuvers the ogre, we'll just call him an, uh, whatever, whatever it is, ogre lawyer, something. Ogre lawyer. Yeah. Yeah, get the used ogre. to that word. Right. Yeah, I, I assume Cane <laughs> Black Knife will feature a lot of that. So anyway, um, but but that kind of interaction where he's using his street smarts and his incredible uh, skills with violence to turn this army into his own, I was like, okay, now we're now we're cooking with gas. <laughs> this is the yeah, cane yeah. I'm used to, <laughs> which is. Yeah. I, I'm sure I'm sure that that hurts the brains of some of the the more rabid Stover uh, fans listening, but it was just I guess it was just a relief on a first read through to get back to the familiar version of Kane, and I suspect that on a second or third read that stuff would still be fun, but I would be better able or better equipped to pay attention to the the other passages with more philosophy and um, uh, tons and tons of dialogue. I mean, there was plenty of philosophy in the prison, but. Uh, oh know, yeah. There's a lot of that, oh, yeah. but I don't I know. Was, Does that... I was going to say, I thought that was what you were going to talk about was like. Uh, we should. Having trouble with the philosophy in the prison sequence. Cause so this was actually when, um, when Rob and I, well, I'll be honest. It was mostly me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> talk to to Matt. Um, one of the things we we chatted over w was difficulties in writing and difficulties in crafting a story. And he said, Kane in the the dungeon and in the pit was the toughest part of this book for him to write because in in the original outline for it, you know, Kane is taken to the dungeon and he's thrown in a cell. Right. And he's just stuck there. And he was like, I need King to have this character nadir in here where he is alone in the dark with his thoughts. And he has to have this revelation about what the black flow means and what he can do on overworld versus on earth. I need to have this happen, but I need King to have agency while that happens. And I can't figure out how to do that while getting him to rock bottom. And he eventually cracked the code by having uh, Kane get uh, Majesty down and in and, and convince him, hey, throw me in the pit so I can do something there. Right. And then yeah. he can engage in active conversations with uh, Tapasi and with Chris and with Orbeck. And then he hits his true rock bottom when they move him to the shaft. He he is on the what he thinks is on the ascension. He's got the pit under control. He's organized it. He's making a breakout plan that's going to ruin everything for Assumption Day. And then it's all yanked away again. And they throw him in the pit. And yeah. that's when he has his revelation. So that scene is interesting because uh, the, the scene in the in the shaft, because this is the, the, the worst part of the worst Whoa. part of the worst Ooh. prison in the Empire, yeah. right? Uh, as it's yeah, the descriptions are really quite disgusting. Um, what? Oh shoot! What was I going to say? Uh, he. Uh, gosh, you the know philosophy? what? I'll think of it. 
Yeah, well, the the there's a personal philosophy there that I wanted to get into, but I need to organize my thoughts. Tell me about the the black flow and the revelation that he comes to with the black flow or the black shell. So <laughs> this is tough to put into words. Um, oh, and I just but remember basically the idea of black flow and the reason it can like defeat the stone, uh, the limestone of the pit in in a way that other flow can't is that it's not really magic in the same sense. Mm. It is more pure force of will. It is, but not even will, it's the pure force of action and decisiveness. It is, uh, it goes to the root of Cainism as a philosophy, my will or I won't. And, and so Cain has this, this moment of apotheosis where he realizes, you know what, I have this power available to me and on overworld, this power has a metaphysical manifestation. It's not just an idea of, wow, I'm really good at making my mind up and putting my entire spirit into doing one thing, achieving one goal. Here, I can use mystical powers to make that happen. Mm. And that kind of defeats the the anti-magic protections in the prison and allows him to say, you know what, I'm going to sit here and bend my entire will, all of the training I've had, all of the experiences I've had on one goal. I'm going to move my to feet. To move his feet, yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. That makes some kind of sense, I suppose. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, the, the thing I was thinking of is that scene when, when he uh, gets himself thrown in the shaft. Uh, I, I found that an interesting moment because uh, essentially he's, he's as you say, he feels like he's on the ascent. He's created this uh, little army of prisoners and they're going to bust out, you know, come hell or high water, we're out of here. And then uh, things don't go quite as well, right? They could fight it out, but a lot of people are going to die. He's probably going to die. Yeah, he's kind of just thinking, ah, this is, it'll be one last hoorah, and then I'm out of here. Um, and then he decides not to, because Delian begs him not to. And it, it, he, he surrenders, says, take me, throw me in the shaft, whatever. I guess, uh, I guess I'll just go to my lowest point and he volunteers himself for that. And I, I thought that was an interesting moment because it did feel the whole scene in the prison felt very um, pointed. Like uh, it, it's about a person uh, about like me living my life, you know, in suburban Utah or whatever. Like, how do you make your decisions? How do you, how do you move forward? How do you make choices? Uh, and there's this, idea that he plants in my head that in order to truly ascend you have to not just not just hit rock bottom but dive um and i'm not sure how i feel about this i i'm i'm not sure yeah. if i agree with it if i like the the kind of personal philosophy behind it uh but that's what it felt like it was like hey you've got you you have to reach rock bottom and if nobody's going to push you there, then you push yourself. No, I I actually think you're you're right. I don't know if he's quite advocating you have to hit rock bottom, but I think uh, the philosophy he's pushing is you have to destroy your own illusions 
in order to achieve this kind of transcendent mm. will. Okay. And where I disagree with the philosophy, uh, it's it's the idea that any meaning is automatically an illusion. That nothing has meaning unless you give it meaning. That mm. there is no inherent truth or reason or meaning with capital letters in the right. world. It's just you got to you got to accept that it's just what i choose and uh, you know i personally cannot subscribe to that philosophy <laughs> but i do think it's an engaging thing to read about and it certainly does make me stop and think and consider you know it's not necessarily that everything in my life has to be canist but there there are moments in my life where i'm like man you know, maybe this is a good opportunity that I can apply this sort of thinking where, you know, if, if it's a, a career choice or, you know, something that I'm being wishy-washy about or looking for some deeper meaning in something that is purely mundane and you can stop yourself and think, hey, you know, how should I approach this differently? How should I approach this more effectively? So it gives good food for thought, even if ultimately I think the foundation of this Canist philosophy is, you know, not, not for me. <laughs> right. It's, it's, um, hyper individualistic, right? Mm -hmm. Um, the, as you say, the only thing that gives meaning is what you decide has meaning. And well, yeah, so I, we, we talk about, uh, you know, in, in the first book and especially in chapter zero, the Patreon episode, we talked about the idea of like, how the political and economic philosophy mm. plays out in these and how there's kind of critique of end stage capitalism and critique of end stage communism. I feel like Keynes philosophy is like quote unquote end stage libertarianism. <laughs> That's where I was going to go with it. Yeah. 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 It feels, feels very much like, um, I, <laughs> there was, a. Uh, who was it once described cabin in the woods as either a hateful love letter to the horror genre or a loving hate letter. Um, and, uh, that's kind of how I feel about the, these two books and, uh, and libertarianism. I can't decide <laughs> if he loves it or hates it because <laughs> of how he comes after it. Um, so, but I guess there's no need for us yeah. to decide quite yet, but speaking of libertarians, we should talk about Duncan uh Hari's father Duncan Michelson um <sighs> who gets cyborged at least that's what we hear um he gets taken off and and I, whatever that means they remove part of his brain or insert something into his brain and and basically turn him into a just a a meat conduit you know a, a la um uh, uh the matrix or something like that um, so he gets cyborged, uh, basically like for his computing power that his brain can provide something along yeah. those lines. Um, so, which, okay. I just quick uh, interruption. If yeah. you dig into the actual science, the efficiency of energy usage in the brain and, and heat mm. is way, way better than we can currently do with technology. Like if you were to build an actual, like, android that could think like a human being that the energy consumption would be absolutely untenable so it kind of makes sense that mm. they would want to use 
human, human brain brains. power in this way. Sorry, go on. Sick, disgusting sense, but sure. Okay. Uh, anyway, so we, we don't really see Duncan after the first half of the book. We just kind of hear about him, but we hear mm -hmm. echoes of Duncan throughout, uh, you know, in, in Hari's head or just kind of the, the quotes that he uses, the people he references and all that. But uh, Duncan finally gets cyborged. And this is where my uh, prediction comes in. He's not going to stay cyborged. Uh, I don't know that they've mentioned that it's a reversible process, but it kind of sounds like it's supposed to be, you know, irreversible. Uh, but with, with Hari moving his legs, with him kind of force of willing, magicking himself back into a, a state of movement, I, I, that's, I don't think he's going to let Duncan just kind of wallow. I think he's going to... I think he's going to go after Duncan and uh, try to de-cyborg him. There's my prediction. Ooh, okay. Because like he needs, uh, yeah, he's going to need his uh, wisdom, such as it is. Okay. Nice. I like it. Uh, Always likes predictions. But uh, yeah, what, uh, what do you want to talk about, Duncan, in this half of the book? Uh, I don't have much specifically to say about him, but but to say... What a tragic mm. bit of writing in this book. The That lingering image of Hari standing outside of the Abbey, watching them load him into the truck and fly him away. Mm. And the last thing he, quote-unquote, says, he walks his fingers... It's an inch toward daylight, right? Inch toward daylight. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I... I have quite enjoyed him as a character, even though we barely ever see him, but he, but his chapters, his conversations are so loaded, so meaningful that I've, yes. I, I, I guess uh, I'm going back to my whole Shauna thing, like where are the stakes? Right. And here I am begging for Duncan to be brought back <laughs> from being cyborg. No, I, no, no stakes, please, please get rid of all stakes. Um, so Anyway, I just uh, I've really enjoyed it. him quite a bit, and as you say, quite tragic. All right, um, who else do we need to talk about? We got to talk about Chris. Wraith? Oh, about oh, and Chris. Wraith. Oh, my Chris gosh. Hansen. Yeah. Okay, let's do Chris and let's do Wraith. So to start off with Chris, I have I have a quote. One okay. of my favorite lines in the entire book. Uh, in my whole life, there are only three people I've ever really trusted. He said, one of them was my father. The other two are you. Love that. This is uh, Kane talking to Chris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Chris is two people. Chris is Chris Hansen, and Chris is Delian, the Mathondion. He's he's the the half elf on Overworld, and mm, both both characters have this like tragic but ultimately uplifting. Because with Chris, really, his whole arc is contained in Chapter Zero. And Delian is the rest of the book. Right. And they have they both have a tragic but ultimately uplifting story. And we could maybe also talk about relationships with their fathers. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, what we could do that, we could bring Kane into it, but we could also just talk about both halves of Chris and Delian uh, having certain relationships with their fathers and what gets accepted and what gets rejected. Yeah. 
it, it is interesting that how much we see of primal culture and how xenophobic they are. And yet Delian was accepted into the royal family as an adopted half, half primal child. And what did he do? He kind of like tricked his way into it or something. Uh, Toronel, the mm. one of the sons of yeah, the uh, older brother. Yeah, he was lost. He was a prodigal son, and uh, that return oh, right. was yes. that the return was Delian's doing. And right. for that, he went in and demanded like a a gift, a boon. Yeah, yeah, and and was surprised by the the boon he was given, but. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, what what uh, with Chris, uh, sorry, or Delian, what what do you call him in your head? Do you think of him as Chris Hansen or do you think of him as of him as Delian? I think that might be kind of I, revealing. I think of him as Delian. Uh, okay. It's the first time I read the book, I thought of him as Chris the whole time. It wasn't until I revisited Blade of Taishal and really started digging into how the character arcs were shaped and uh, and and sort of where the book ended and realized how chapter zero s- sits apart and why it's called chapter zero and not chapter one or prologue. Uh, that was when I said, you know, no, there's a demarcation here. This is Chris. This is Delian. And hmm. Chris is just here in chapter zero. Okay. I think there okay. are moments in in chapter twenty six where Chris peeks out a little bit when he's talking to uh, in, in the very end. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Over over glasses of hundred year old brandy that <laughs> Kane doesn't like because it's not Scotch. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's like what? no nobody on this whole world has figured out how to make Scotch yet. Um, <laughs> what do we make of his? storyline then um as you say it's delian's storyline after chapter zero what is the point of him as a character now what i mean by that is when i think of duncan when i think of uh majesty when i think of tan elkoth um avery shanks i can kind of see what stover's trying to accomplish or what he's trying to say through these characters what do you make of that for delian I think Delian's purpose is one specific thing. It is a reaction and a counterpoint to heroes die. Heroes live here. Hmm. Delian is the hero of this story. And he lives. He gets more or less his happy ending. We are given hope. We are given promise for the world. And it is because of his heroism. Fair enough. On to Wraith. <laughs> I don't. I just don't have anything to add to that. That makes a lot okay. of sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's and this is why, like I said in the first part episode, we hit these absolutely abyssal lows in this mm, book. Yeah, but the the contrast to the highs make the highs all the brighter to me. And Chris is the brightest of those. He and and I. It's no coincidence that his whole symbolic thing is fire and light. Whereas Kane is shadow and darkness and black flow. 
Okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, what was it? Two two brothers? Yeah, twin born brothers apart. born of different mothers. One is dark, one is light. Right, yeah. exactly. There you go. Okay. Uh, and then there's Wraith, who... No. <laughs> okay. Right. Wait, you know, why Do don't, why don't like I just Wraith? turn you... Do... No, of course I don't like Wraith. Wraith's a piece of garbage. Um, Do but... you like Wraith as a character? Uh, I don't know how to answer that. To, like, honestly, Drew, I... We got to the end of chapter 11 and I just had, I had opinion after opinion after opinion. <laughs> and I, I got a level with you at, at the end of this book. I'm so in need of a reread that I've got nothing. I have nothing for you. I don't, I, I, <laughs> I don't know what to make of any of this. Um, I've told the story ad nauseum, and so I'm, I apologize for repeating it. But you know, I get to the last page of the Silmarillion at the age of seventeen, and close the book. It says the end, and I go, "Huh, what was that?" And turn to page one and reread it. <laughs> I am not prepared to just turn to page one of Blade of Tyshall and do that again uh, right now. But I will have to do it again to figure out what I think of this book, what I think of the characters. Um, I just don't have it in me right now. I, and which extremely unsatisfying for a podcast, but that's why you're here. Okay. So, okay. Well, so what well, the I heck is going thoughts. on with Wraith? I don't so, like, I, I don't oh, like Wraith. Oh. I don't, um, he feels very, okay, here's, uh, I'll do the best I can. He feels very, um, primitive in his emotions and reasoning. Um, and this this fits really well with the idea of the blind god, uh, like he's the he's the final uh, kind of bulwark or even resting place yeah. of the final god, right? In the end, and that makes sense. If the blind god is the distillation of humanity, um, then Wraith is the character that I felt like uh, much more than Kohlberg. Wraith is the character who uh, embodies human nature. Uh, so you know, you, you hit me on the head, I will hit you on the head. You know, you killed my family, yeah. I'm going to kill your family. Um, you're, I, I, I will do what I have to do to get my revenge. Uh, it, it's, mm. it's very, it's very primitive, right? He is a, a, a thoroughly human. ironic character. Everything about him is built on this idea of his tremendous powers of mind but yet he is terrible at critical thinking. Mm. He does not right. consider the consequences of his actions. He acts upon emotion. He, he just goes. Um, and in that way, he is very different from Cain, but in another way, he is very similar to Cain because both of them are very good at bending their entire will upon achieving something. They're both men of action. Yeah, uh, but it, I think it's it's such a cool, complicated character where you're like, this dude is like telepathic, telekinetic, all the all the tele things <laughs> better than anybody else has ever seen. But yet he's a terrible thinker, right? And which and, is the one thing we, he's supposed to be able to do. And we see him at the end of the book totally broken down because all his, his illusions have been stripped away. And he realizes this is all my fault because I failed to think about things. Mm. So, 
Okay. I don't I don't like Wraith as a human being. I do love him as a character. Yeah, uh, okay. There yeah, was so there was a um I think it was an April Fool's joke or something that Stover posted years ago. Um but it was it was a fake book. Uh a fake title <laughs> okay. that yeah. that like got out called Wraith of the Bodecan and I remember like seeing it first out of context where I was like, wait, he's writing a Wraith book. Oh yeah. Like this is going to be incredible. And then, and then I, you know, looked into it more and saw it was a joke, but uh, (laughs) that's, that's how I feel about Wraith. Um, He's, I'm not going to equate him to Egwene in the wheel of time, but I feel about them similarly. I don't, I wouldn't want to sit down and have a drink with them. I wouldn't want them to be my next door neighbor or in my friend group, <laughs> but, but you're as they're there. characters, they're written brilliantly. Yeah. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Drew. <laughs> um, I, I have never been wrung so dry by a book. Uh, I, I, I've already said a few things to this effect, but I just feel emptied out. So, we're going to we're going to need to maybe talk a few more things get get some excitement going so that i uh, have a little momentum to get me into cane black knife okay so let's do some final thoughts even if they take 10 minutes let's do some final thoughts what do you got yeah okay so i've i've a few um a few highlights that i thought were worth bringing up here um This is going back to that that scene of Cain confronting Milecoth on on the God's way. And this surreal weird emotion and, and description. Um <laughs> He's brought his own kind of spring, drawing life from the city's fallow earth. The ruins sprout cardinal red, maroon, and gold, scarlet-streaked saplings that uncoil toward his solar presence. Social police and household knights and good old uncommon regular infantry, digging themselves out of their burrows of rubble, helping each other up, even the wounded, even the dying, so that all can rise in respect, then kneel in reverence at the arrival of God. And it's weird. Weird is the only word for it. Not in the debased and degraded sense of the mere peculiar. Weird in the old sense. The Scottish sense. The old English root. Weird with a Y. Because somehow I have always been here. I have always sat in the rubble of the financial block, facing down the length of God's way over the carnage and ruin of Old Town, perched on a blast-folded curve of a salt car hull with Casal's cold steel across my lap. The rumpled and torn titanium wreckage permanently ticks and pings as it eternally cools under my ass. A few hundred yards to my left, there has always been a smoldering gap where the courthouse once stood. And he goes on and on and on. I will always be here because there is no future. Everything that is about to happen never will. Now is all there is. Hmm. Yeah. You want to know what's going on there? No. Do I? <laughs> I don't know. Read the last two books. Oh, okay. All right. 
<laughs> so what uh, what chapter is that in? That's in, uh, I believe it's in 25. Okay, just so people can, can uh, reference yeah. that. It's in chapter 25 somewhere. Yeah, it's right at the beginning of chapter 25. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Um, all right, so that's <laughs> what we have to look forward to, apparently. Um, mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to some Ogreloy, uh, some sweet, sweet uh, black knife action. Kane is a black knife now. Right. Orbeck adopted him. There's blood oaths and, and whatnot. Speaking of uh, blood oaths, oh boy. You know what? I, I mentioned it, and then we skipped right over it. Uh, oh. So Kane's so oh, Jesus, the, apparently. Oh, the sacramental yeah. cure? I, which, honestly, it felt really heavy-handed for me. There's, there's so much subtlety going on that moments like that come up, and I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> pass the pass the cup around a few drops will do you know that etc etc i i didn't love it but i'm open to loving it on a future read so this is an interesting thing for me i've read this book three times now mm-hmm. i never thought of it in that way until you mentioned it and really? i think that's because you're a terrible catholic drew well, <laughs> there's another series with a similar scene that is um, more direct in what it does. And that has just kind of taken up that chunk of my brain space of like huh. communion in fantasy. <laughs> right. What series is that? The Book of the New Sun. Uh, well, of course. I, why did I even bring it up? <laughs> um, but I think the biggest thing is that, uh, so as a, a Catholic and honestly, like more toward the traditional end of Catholic, mm-hmm. uh, when I receive communion, I only take the host. I don't mm-hmm. drink the cup. Um, I, I never have. Uh, that That's like a, a thing... Um, a, a carryover from uh, the like pre-Vatican II Mass. Typically, right. uh, the congregation would only receive the body of Christ. Um, at least you know, like in the like the Latin Mass, the the Tridentine Mass tradition yeah. that I come from. But so, like for this, where there wasn't a physical or, or like a. a a food representation, a body representation. Mm. It was only the blood. I didn't make that automatic connection. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, there, there's my uh, Mormon upbringing uh, <laughs> serving me there in that one. Um, okay. There. Look, here's what I'm thinking, Drew. Okay. We go on. We do the rest of this series. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next episode will be here on the Legendarium. We'll do the first half of uh, Kane Black Knife. Then we'll go over to IOL, Inking Out Loud. Uh, like and subscribe, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll do that for the, the final two books. Now, Drew, I don't know where I'm going to be in a year, what's going to be going on on my schedule, any of that stuff. But I want to reread Blade of Taishal and redo this episode. Um, you know, maybe we end up doing like 10 episodes or something because, because I feel like there is enough and I, 
I went through, you know, I had my highlighter, I've got the pencil, I'm making notes. And it, then I realized as we were sitting down to do this episode, I was like, look, I could get lost in a ton of rabbit holes. Um, but I'm not, I don't, I don't think I have it in me today to get lost in those, to dive in. Um, so I want to redo this episode in about a year. Uh, and, and really dig into some of the philosophy because it was, it was lighting my fire. As you know, like the last three yeah, or four yeah. episodes that we've done, I really wanted to get into the economics, the philosophy, the politics of what's going on in these stories. And this, this book really did just kind of like, I got sucked dry on this one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> vampirically, not, not the fun way. Um, so, so I'm, so I need time is what I'm trying to say. Oh, for and sure. We'll, and we'll come back and do this one again. Sound good? Oh, I would love to do like a, a one year later retrospective yeah. on on Blade of Taishao. And we'll get we'll get but, Matthew Stover to join and I can be like, all right, let me tell you why the sacrament part didn't work for me. All right. <laughs> Great idea. Uh, uh okay. Drew I said at the some beginning final draft action. We're stealing the final draft. This is a tradition over on Inking Out Loud, but we'll do it here because I was saving this one specifically for something in this series. When is it going to work? When is it going to be most appropriate? Today, it is most appropriate. Okay. This, I've been drinking a, a, a Doppelbach, uh, sorry, a Doppelbach lager from Wasatch Brewery. Uh, and it is fittingly named Devastator. And I, I, I'll, I've said it three times now. I'll say it again. I've never been quite as devastated by a book. I just <laughs> like, like mentally and emotionally injured uh, as I have been by this one. So yeah. Yeah, happy endings or no, it's uh, it, this was a rough one for me to read. Fair enough. I, I think that's a, an eminently respectable state to exit blade of Ty Shallon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, I am drinking uh, something pretty fun over here. This is a uh, whiskey barrel aged stout, a double barrel, uh, Weller Antique Bourbon Barrels and Leopold Brothers Rocky Mountain Blackberry Whiskey Barrels. Okay, sure. From uh, Cerebral Brewing Company in Denver, Colorado, 15.1%. Gee, at Christmas. Um, You're still a, functional. Uh, yeah, it's a big boy. I mean, I haven't had nearly all of it. I still have a full <laughs> glass. Um, but uh, like you said, very appropriate for the book. This one is called Here Be Monsters. <laughs> uh, do either of them there get sure their... are an awful lot of monsters oh, yeah. in this book. <laughs> yeah. Um, nothing, but nothing I on do, the... before we end the whole Blade of Tyshell conversation, I want to leave us on a quote. Hari likes to quote Nietzsche. And mm. when you gaze into the abyss, remember that the abyss gazes also into you. My only reply, this is from Chris or Delian, my only reply is the mantra of Conrad's Kurtz. Now, if you have read um, yeah, Heart of Darkness, Heart of Darkness, you may be familiar. If you're not, Kurtz's mantra is the horror, the horror. The horror. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe that's what it was. Maybe I wasn't prepared to stare into the abyss of my own soul. Thanks for making me read this book, Drew. You Jamie. are so welcome. 
It's going to be a lot more fun on the next one. All right. Well, I'll be the judge of that. And so will everybody else who sat through uh, me kind of uh, and my lugubrious nature uh, on this episode. So, yes, we will return in uh, better form or I will. I will return in better form uh, (laughs) for the next book and we'll see how it goes. (laughs) So, again, that'll be here on the Legendarium. Uh, Like and subscribe based on, you know, my other work. And uh, we will (laughs) see you all next time. Thanks, Drew. Yeah, thanks, Greg.